Welcome to Intelligence Talks, the podcast from the research team at Knight Frank. I'm your host, Anna Ward, Senior Residential Analyst. So we're a few months away now from the end of the Brexit transition period. And as a result, we thought it'd be a good idea to get on as a guest speaker, Katie Good, a lawyer and UK immigration expert at Frankerman. Katie talks a lot about how the rules for those that own second homes in the European Union will be changing. We'll also be talking about the rural trend and the increasing waterfront premiums. People are not just looking at living outside of cities, they're also keen to live on the coast. And the concept of a second home is becoming blurred as people are increasingly working from home. But firstly, we'll be looking at our new global development report. Out last week, the report surveyed 160 developers across 22 locations. It found almost six in 10 global developers have delayed projects in response to the spread of COVID. And of those with delayed projects, more than four in 10 are now making changes to designs that were once considered complete. Joining me to talk about the report in more detail are Residential Research Associate Partner, Flora Harley, and Alexander Lewis, partner in our global development consultancy team. So, Flora, welcome to the podcast. Just to kick off, in terms of the biggest constraints that developers are facing, what did you learn from the report and what did the survey tell you about the key challenges? Thanks, Anna. So we wanted to understand what is the biggest constraints facing the developers. And what our survey respondents told us is that funding is actually the biggest barrier. 30% of developers cited it as their biggest concern. Some markets have seen a reduced number of lending facilities offered to developers, and there's comparatively limited appetite among banks for development lending. And in some markets, such as Australia, there's some stringent pre-sales requirements, which makes it hard to begin construction without these funding requirements. One way for governments to potentially encourage construction would be to facilitate lending, perhaps through a combination of guarantees or loans. So this could remove one of the biggest hurdles. The second biggest constraint or concern among developers is more property market regulation and taxation. Recent changes in this area have been such as 20% bought in in Singapore and in Vancouver in recent years. And I know we've pointed to the fact that they're bringing in an overseas buyer surcharge in London from April 2021. So this can dampen the level of demand and disincentivize development as a result. Just uncertainty around future policy and the direction may be enough to reduce willingness to develop. So this could lead to a bigger shortfall in delivery of new homes. Thanks, Flora. So a number of challenges there, clearly, for developers. Alex, the report also touches on how some developers are looking at COVID-19-inspired development changes. I mean, do you think that these will be quite significant or are you, are you hearing that developers are looking at more minor changes? I think it's too early, really, to say. The one message that came through clearly from John Mulryan was that they're not making knee-jerk reactions. They're not suddenly putting home offices in every flat and acres and acres of amenity space, although these are considerations. I think it's likely going forward, and this is purely a prediction, that the changes are likely to be macro changes in terms of use classes in a development rather than micro changes in terms of the design of individual apartments. And that's the reality. I mean, the the big question is fundamentally, as a society, are we going to go back to the way things were or are we going to actually take this as an opportunity to change the way we live? And I hate to say it, that will come down to money because it always does. For those that are likely to make changes, and that can be across offices or residential, I mean, what would you say that are the most sort of interesting ones or the most profound ones that we might see? I, I think the most profound change is going to be how we work. And within a scheme. I mean, what's interesting is that for decades, planning authorities have been trying to promote the idea of live workspace. 
and this has failed. A live workspace would typically be a, a studio flat or a one bedroom flat that has, under planning terms, under use class terms, comes, comes as live work. Now, that concept now is going to be brought into sharp relief because what I think you will start to see in developments, in, in major developments, is the idea that you can live and work in the same place, but not necessarily in the same building. Because actually, I mean, I speak for myself, but working from home has been great in terms of not having to travel. But my little my little study on the landing of the house isn't actually where I want to work. And so I'm subsequently looking at converting my, my garage. And, and I think these are the decisions that developers will be taking on a larger basis is, do we take that redundant retail or do we take that, that slightly poor residential space backing up against the railway lines? And do we turn that into offices that people can rent by the desk space? Because that's the way we're going. And there will be challenges to come out of this, but I also think there are huge opportunities. And I think flexibility, I mean, Flora talks about flexibility being the main word in her report. And I think that's absolutely key. And the million dollar question for me in this respect is how are the planners, how quickly are the planners going to respond to the, to the needs of developers in this respect? I mean, are they going to, the feedback we're getting so far from our planning team is that it's unlikely that they're going to make any knee jerk decisions in response to this crisis. So they're going to be protecting offices. They're going to be having strict affordable housing regulations. What I think developers would like to see from the planners is a little bit of pragmatism and working together to actually make sure that whatever space is provided, it's filled and it's used. This would also apply to retail, obviously. And one of the other findings in the report was the fact that people are increasingly, or at least they're still keen, I think it was 45% of the respondents said they were more likely to develop in cities. But I guess against the backdrop of COVID, there's lots of headlines of moves out of cities and so on. Flora, are we surprised by that result? I mean, do you think that developers are by and large backing the future of the city going forward? I think it wasn't too much of a surprise after having spoken to quite a few of the developers, uh, particularly John Mulryan, who brought up the fact that we have seen a huge amount of urbanisation over the last 20 to 30 years. A lot of the population has been moving into those city centres. And as you say, it's been in the news a lot of the mass exodus of the cities. But that's just because all the reasons that we live in a city, you know, the vibrancy, the culture, the amenities, everything that's close by, they've been closed during lockdowns and during the pandemic. But that's not going to be the case forever. And they're going to come back. And as we remind ourselves why we live in cities, more and more people will come back and we won't see that reversal of the trend. I think fundamentally, it's something that Andrew Miller pointed out in the report is that cities such as New York and London have faced so many challenges throughout their long city. And they have the ability to adapt and to thrive through their ability to be dynamic and come back stronger. And they just reinvent themselves in a new way. There's ultimately always going to be a place for cities such as London and New York and Paris in the world. They create innovation, they create productivity and hubs for knowledge and sharing and just have that vibrancy. And that all will come back. I just think it will take a little bit more time than people might have initially thought. Going back to your, you know, your report and its findings, what would be your view of the future just based on your conversations with developers and your thoughts around what development might look like going forwards? I think this comes down to what Alex said earlier in that flexibility is key here. And what 
I've took away from all the interviews and the discussions I had on this is that it's just accelerating those pre-existing trends. The focus on well-being, you know, reassessing how you live, but living in the way that really benefits you both physically and mentally. So I think we're going to see that flexibility incorporating that into the way we live maybe it is having that more rentable desk space within developments so that means you can go and have your video conferencing without any of this disruptions but it also means that you can switch off from work when you come home because I think that's a huge thing for people is they don't want the lines to blur permanently because our home has become our place of work but we need to be able to switch off for our own mental well-being so I think we're going to see that and we're also going to see a huge amount of technology I think the connectivity thing is huge as we've all seen during this lockdown I think once or twice a week I'll hear sorry you're on mute or oh your connection dropped out there so having good quality connections is going to be something that will really set developments apart I think 5G smart fiber infrastructure which I spoke to Tim Huxtable about in the report all of these sorts of things are really going to enable better developments in the future and for enable for that flexible lifestyle as well as flexible homes. We've heard from Flora and Alex on the key issues that developers globally are facing, but turning to the UK, Brexit is once again at the forefront of many people's minds. And for individuals in the UK with second homes in the EU, or for those that are looking to buy homes in the EU, there are some serious questions to ponder. Our Head of International Research, Kate Everett-Allen, chats now with Fragman lawyer Katie Good to work out what those second homeowners need to think about before the Brexit transition period ends on the 31st of December. So we're now just a few months away from the end of the transition period and inevitably our clients have a lot of questions about what Brexit really means for them. And some will of course be UK citizens with second homes in the EU, others may be looking to plan a permanent move to places like France or Italy for example. And then there's a final group who are non-UK nationals who are looking to buy in the UK after the 1st of January 2021. So, Katie, let's start with those with second homes in the EU. What changes after the 1st of January next year and just how much paperwork will they need to complete each time they want to plan a trip across to their property on the continent? So from this date, 1st of January, UK nationals will no longer be able to enjoy free movement. So essentially, they will need a visa to work, study and live more permanently in the EU. But with all that said, it has been confirmed that UK nationals will not need visas to visit the EU for short term stays as a tourist. So potentially those who are looking to come to their second home for a holiday. However, it is very likely that at some point in the future, UK nationals may be required to apply under a visa waiver programme, which is essentially an electronic travel permission. So very similar to what UK nationals have to do before they enter the US and they have to apply for an ESTA. And it will likely, and I stress likely because the finer details haven't been confirmed or published yet, but this idea of an electronic travel authorization will be something along the lines of individuals will need to complete a very basic online application. 
application form and provide you know, their personal details, uh, their passport details, and they'll receive approval either electronically or digitally linked to their passport. But importantly, they need to do this before they travel. It hasn't been confirmed yet whether this will be in effect from the 1st of January, but obviously individuals will just need to be aware that this may be something that they will need to do before they come on holiday or before they visit their second home in the EU. Thanks, Katie. So if it is along the lines of a sort of US Esther style digital application, that means for our clients, for example, who have ski homes maybe in the Alps, if they are looking at the forecast and actually there's a, a big amount of snow due to fall next weekend or something, they can quite easily, hopefully, assuming this is what gets agreed, they can apply online and still hop on a plane. So there's, there's more paperwork involved, but there shouldn't be any restrictions on the number of times you could visit. Is that right? So like I said, they haven't really introduced the finer details, but if we look at it from the perspective of the ESTA, which is potentially what it may be based upon, that's valid for a certain period of time. So, you know, potentially a year or two years. And during that time, they could then travel as many times as they wanted. But obviously, each country will have specific provisions for visitors and how long they can stay for and how frequent they can come. So if an individual is does have a, a holiday home in France, they just need to be very mindful of the immigration system for that particular country and the restrictions involved for entering as a visitor. Moving on to those that might be looking to relocate permanently to maybe France, Spain, Italy after the 1st of January, there's obviously still time to purchase a house Perhaps, I mean, usually transaction times take between eight and 12 weeks for it to go through on the continent. But if they're looking to move after the 1st of January 2021, what are the challenges there? So there is definitely still time from an immigration perspective to obviously enter before the 31st of December and they can continue to you know, relocate and enter on the basis of their current UK passport. For UK nationals who enter a new country before this date, they will need to register to protect their current rights and each country in the EU will have different mechanisms in place and will have its own form of residence permit. But for those who are residing in an EU country before the 1st of January 2021, they will likely need to obtain this permit before the 1st of July of next year. But again, they need to make sure that they're fully aware of the provisions for that specific country, because each country has introduced a new system. But for those who are looking to move to the EU permanently after the 1st of January, they will be subject, UK nationals will be subject to the same immigration system as any other non-EU national. We know from what I said before that they don't necessarily require a visa to visit, but there will be restrictions on the length of stay and the permitted activities as what they can do as a visitor. And that will be very specific to the country that they're intending to go to. But as an example, in the UK, an individual is not permitted to carry out any productive work as a visitor, which also includes remote working, which is obviously very prevalent in the current situation. So individuals who are travelling to an EU country post 1st January 2021 need to be very careful that they don't inadvertently breach their immigration permission. 
but if they intend to work or study or invest or stay long term in an EU country, they'll need to apply for a visa under the immigration system of that particular country and they'll need to meet the relevant eligibility and suitability requirements. They'll need to consider obviously processing times because these types of visas could take a very long time and they need to have visa approval prior to travel. There'll be associated government costs with an application. They'll need to consider if they need legal representation to submit an application on their behalf if, if the requirements are particularly complex and also how long they can stay in that country with that permission. So in short, it, unfortunately, it will become considerably more difficult to permanently relocate to an EU country after the 1st of January 2021. Thanks, Katie. So it sounds like there's a lot of due diligence, a lot of research that needs to take place between now and the end of the year for anybody that is looking to move permanently next year. Yes, definitely. And it could be something that is a little bit more tactical if they could potentially change their move date you know, prior to the 1st of January 2021, if that's possible for those individuals. And then they could benefit from still being in the transition period. But yeah, like I said, post 1st of January 2021, it will be considerably more difficult to permanently relocate to the EU and vice versa for EU nationals looking to come to the UK. Lots to think about then if you own a second home in the EU and hopefully Katie has cleared up any confusion around that. Not everyone of course has a second home in the EU and some are increasingly looking closer to home. In the UK, waterfront properties are commanding high premiums. Senior research analyst Chris Drews talks to partner and head of National Waterfront Christopher Bailey about the key findings in the 14th edition of Waterfront View, Knight Frank's annual publication dedicated to showcasing the finest waterfront properties across the UK and beyond. Now, a lot of people in this, of course, exceptional year where we've had uh, the COVID pandemic and lockdown have had a lot of time to think about quality of life and, and that lifestyle as well. Certainly since the market reopened in May, we've predominantly seen people's interest in green spaces and more space, whether they're working from home or outdoor space, as the main drivers of the residential research market. Our own analysis actually also shows that the sort of average premium paid for a waterfront property is 46% compared to a a non-waterfront property. Christopher, why do you think are people willing to pay that? And have you seen that change since lockdown? To answer your first part first, the reason is market forces. And as soon as you come within sight of a river or an estuary or the coastline, that property becomes significantly more desirable. And and the closer one gets to the water's edge and the more effect that the lifestyle can change for the better, the more the property increases in value. Our waterfront index has been going for for a number of years now, 10 years plus. And we've seen evidence every year on year that the estuary properties are the most valuable. And that's because the waterfront lifestyle that an estuary property affords includes owning and running mooring, owning a slipway, you know, just being able to walk out of your front door or off your terrace into a little dinghy and and there's your yacht or boat out in the estuary. And that's the sort of lifestyle that many people yearn for and, and aspire to. And since lockdown, or or rather, I think during lockdown, I was speaking to a number of buyers who 
just were becoming more and more uh, focused on that freedom, the fresh air, the lower crime rates, the healthier lifestyle that living by the water offers. And it's as much mental health as it is the physical health. And I think that's what you know, we can provide. Touching on that, actually, we, we've seen from separate analysis that um, in terms of web searches, this has been a real boom year in terms of people searching for those sort of coastal and seaside uh, properties on our own uh, Frank's site. And I think we've seen something like oh, an increase of 171% since lockdown running up to the end of August. At the top of this interview, you sort of mentioned it, but what is the current level of activity in the market like? We've had our busiest July, our busiest summer on record. Well, certainly for the last 16 years, we've had our busiest summer. Historically, July and August is a time when waterfront buyers and riverside buyers are actually enjoying their holidays with their children. And, and they're, they're not physically viewing or indeed offering. And it's September when they come up for air. But as far back as April, I, I was predicting that this year would be different and the pent up demand for waterfront and riverside properties would start as soon as we came out of lockdown and continue throughout the summer. And that's exactly what's happened. And it's interesting you mentioned web hits and the digital interest. You know, we, we've got a number of properties that we've created virtual tours for. And I think one thing that lockdown has taught us or, or reminded us is that technology and, and the Internet and websites really can be to our advantage. Just going back to Waterfront View this year, we took the decision in March that this year it really was, was a year for us to not produce a printed version of Waterfront View, but to create a fully digitized version. And that we've been able to email that out and send out to a huge number of potential buyers and interested parties. And with that comes in the digital age, a lot more flexibility and, and then the buyers we're speaking to are now coming to the opinion that they don't necessarily have to work from within a commuting distance of London. They can work from a, a home that would have once have been considered more of a second home, you know, up on the north coast of Norfolk or um, the west coast of Wales or Devon and Cornwall. And actually, with connectivity as it is much better these days, they can use these properties much more as a, as a first home. Very interesting. Yes, it'll be fascinating to see how the sort of work from home trend shapes the property market in the future. We've certainly seen it having a positive impact on the on the sort of wider country market. Waterfront View also has uh, a number of spotlight regions that are interesting for various reasons. I know you do a lot of work in the southwest area. Are there any that you would pick out, Christopher? Well, Morganporth has, has been on my radar as an up and coming emerging coastal market for eight years or so now, and that's proved right. And, and those prices have grown significantly over the past five years or more. Croyd has been another very popular coastal market, property market, with all round, all year schooling and an all year round community, a surfing community and good communications. Those are two emerging markets that are maturing now. I think Brixham down on the south coast of Devon is at the beginning of that process. It's a working fishing village at the moment, but it's got some really good restaurants that have come in, shops that have been turned into coffee shops. It's got some excellent schooling within the, sort of the Torbay area. So that gets my vote as an up and coming emerging waterfront market.
Christopher, we're drawing to the end of the Brexit process. It's finally poised. How would you say that has affected the waterfront property market this year? Yes, well, it's an interesting question. I'd like to go back actually to the beginning of the Brexit process, and and uh, which is you know three years ago now or more, and and actually at that point when the Brexit debate came to the head and we knew we were we had the transition period, at that point, UK expats became extremely interested in at least buying a UK property that may not have been within their property portfolio. The pound took a sort of eighteen percent tumble. So three years ago, we first saw a, a trend developing that linked Brexit with the waterfront market. And, and that was really the expats coming in. Within the early part of this year, before lockdown, I, I was seeing a trend developing of a more introverted market where buyers were actually embracing UK holidays, UK staycations. And, and as a result, thinking actually... No, the UK, let's let's look at buying a property in the UK that we can use more, we can use for weekends. And coupled with that is a reduction in carbon footprint as well. So let's not fly abroad. Let's just drive down the road, take the train up to Norfolk. Let's take the train up to Scotland or the West Country and, and enjoy a home that may start off being a second home, but there's every likelihood it will end up being a much more of a first home. If you enjoyed this episode of Intelligence Talks, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please also make sure to share this episode on social media and check out the show notes for more information. Mm-hmm.